Welcome to A Tribe Called Yes, the podcast that brings you closer to the world's most notorious risk takers, trailblazers, and enemies of the status quo. Now, here's your host, Darren K. Roberts. Robert Higginbotham was sitting at a desk in D.C. when he finally said, to hell with this. He joined up with his brother and another amigo to start Liber and Company, an outfit that manufactures a suite of essential bar syrups to help you, the cocktail lover, enjoy a world of better drinks. Amen to that. There are a lot of nuggets of wisdom in this conversation, so I split them into two episodes. So pull out your pencils. Robert is about to drop some serious wisdom. Robert, welcome to the tribe. We're glad to have you. Glad to be here. All right. Let's back up. How does a guy, how does a kid from Bryan, Texas, end up as a freshman at the University of Texas in 2006? So it's worse than that, actually. <laughs> my uh, my twin brother, Adam, also came to UT, and we were the only grandchildren of a Texas A&M professor in the English department for 45 years. Oof. So he has a scholarship in his name at, UT, or at A&M. Rather. My grandma went to Baylor. And my mom, my uncle, my aunt all went to AM. I grew up a mile away from the campus. So I could hear the band at halftime <laughs> outside my house. All I had to do was step outside and I could hear it. So it was pretty tough. My grandfather had passed by the time we left, which in hindsight probably made it a little easier. Yeah. But they were an educational, educationally driven. So going to a good school was first and foremost important to them that we went to UT, didn't really matter that much. You know, I was going to want to go to law school, had mm-hmm. that kind of in the back of my mind. A&M didn't have one at the time. So A&M, I mean, great school for arts, sciences, or for the sciences and, and engineering and agriculture. Great school. My grandpa went there, class of 48. So I have nothing but good things to say about A&M, but yeah. Austin was the place for me. And it's just tough being at, you know, Bryan College Station, home of Texas A&M, given the fact you have family members who went to A&M, grandfather who was a professor. And then you land at the University of Texas. It says a lot about you and your brother that you were willing to to buck the trend. Yeah. So we're, we, I mentioned we're the only grandkids. So we probably figured that they couldn't couldn't eliminate us from the will, <laughs> you know, because it all had to go down somewhere. Didn't so. over options. <laughs> so you mentioned law school. When you get to UT, so what's your mindset when you walk in onto the 40 Acres first day? What are you thinking in terms of what's going to happen uh, law, law school. Law school. Yep. My grandmother paid for me to go to uh, Washington, D.C. As for one of these. There are a few of them out there, but leadership camps in high school. <laughs> so I got to go to Washington for <laughs> a week, experience the Supreme Court and, you know, saw Congress and all that and was always drawn to that. And so I always thought, man, all these politicians, they're all lawyers. So law school is what I'm going to do. Makes sense. You know? So that's what I wanted to do when I, when I stepped on campus, for sure. So you graduate. What's your first job? coming out of college? First job coming out of college, I had worked for a congressman back home who did not make it in 2010, got defeated in an election. I worked on his campaign and thought I would get a job with him. Hmm. Didn't work out that way. My politics aligned in such a way that 2010 was a rough year for the, the guys I wanted to work with. I'll just are, tell people you're Republican, Democrat. People can't just go ahead. So I'm a, I was a moderate. I'm a moderate Democrat. I'm a Texas Democrat through and through pro-business. And really supported a guy named Chet Edwards, who was in Congress for about 18 years. Thought he would hang on for those last two years. 20 would have given me a good shot at maybe working for him in D.C., but he got defeated. So I was left 
looking for a job working for a moderate Southern Democrat, and there weren't any left. So you, you picked a bad time. I picked a bad time. <laughs> 2010, I graduated. So I mean, that was a, that was a bad time for for moderates in general. I think so. Um, I looked around. I found a job working off the hill with a former conservative Democrat up in Oklahoma hmm. named Bill Brewster, and he uh, had a lobby shop in D.C. And so I started off answering phones for him. It took hmm. me five months to find a job. That's how tough it was, man. It was five months to find a job answering phones in DC at the time and had a degree from the University of Texas. So it was a slaughterhouse, man. The, the job market was tough and I didn't get what I wanted, but ended up working for a lobby firm, answering phones, doing pretty basic office stuff. The demand's always high in DC yeah. for yeah. those gigs. Talk about the day that you're sitting at your desk and you, and you get the call. In college, I got my first unpaid internship in DC and thought, man, this is great. This is going to really set me up for something down the line. Graduated college. I had to take my second unpaid internship working for Senator Lieberman, whom I think you yeah. might have worked with yeah, as well. Yeah, we share, we share Lieberman yeah. days. Yeah. So I'm sitting in Senator Lieberman's office. I was working in press for him, again, unpaid. And you know, got the call that said, hey, come in for an interview. We're trying to fill this position pretty quickly. It's not anything glorious, but we think your resume looks pretty good. And you know, my boss is from Oklahoma, so he thinks that you being from Texas, y'all might see things the same way. So I said, okay, of course, man. I mean, any job's a job. And uh, so, you know, I went down and I interviewed and they hired me the next day, which mm. which was fortunate because I was running on fumes at that point. So <laughs> Ramen noodles and we're great. Ramen noodles. I was, uh, yeah, it was, it was rough. It was man. rough. It was rough. And so talk about the transition now to Liber and Company, where you are now. What You're in the D.C. mix. You're living life. Have you gotten really comfortable? Like, where are you in terms of your comfort level? So I was in D.C. for right under four years. My brother, our partner, Chris, who actually also grew up in Bryan, we went to high school together. He came to UT as well. We had kicked around entrepreneurial sort of working for ourselves ideas for a while. We talked about opening a men's clothing shop. We talked about opening a bar. There were several ideas floated around. Some of them needed more capital than others, and we didn't have that. So, uh, you know, I was there for, like I said, three and a half years. And by years two, three, somewhere in there, we really started seriously thinking about doing something on our own. And I was progressing nicely in the in kind of the corporate world. I started off answering phones. It was a kind of a law firm type feel, a small mm. business. They did well. They were right next to the Capitol. They had a steady book of clients and really got my hands dirty in terms of learning about how a small business worked. And they promoted me and I got a pay raise and a couple of pay raises. And mm. by the time we really started buckling down to say, hey, now's the time to do this if we're ever going to do it. I had really grown to like DC and uh, my wife and I were going out to eat for date nights every week and we started making a little bit more money and the comfort level really started feeling nice and, and warm and fuzzy, man. I, I love DC that we had a friend network built in. I mean, we were, we were on a track. I remember sitting at my desk when um, Adam and Chris called me and said, you know, I think December is the month that we need you to come down and start January of 2014, start this thing full time. And we're, we're moving into a new space and we got to have you on board if we're going to do this. And, um, and tell the tribe, what is this thing? This thing is... Library and Company is... So we make craft cocktail syrups. So they're non-alcoholic bar mixers. Mm -hmm. And these are mixers that echo what's happening on-premise, on-premise being behind bars and restaurants at the world's best cocktail bars. You go and spend 10 or $15 on a cocktail and it's not Jack and Coke. This is 
you know, they're paying attention to it the way a chef would pay attention to their food. These are high quality ingredients, you know, craft spirits that have been aged or they've been infused or, you know, really a creative process going on behind the bars. The non-alcoholic side of that, the mixer side of that is what we focus on, which is fresh juice, cane sugar. This part of the industry has really lagged behind the spirits part of the industry for like the last 15 years. You can go and get at any liquor store, really a craft bourbon or a distilled vodka that is made in pot stills the way that it was a hundred years ago. Mm. That was not the case in the eighties. I mean, in the eighties mm. and early nineties, the market was much different. Everything was called a martini and the mixer side had really, really suffered. It's all cough syrup type stuff, high fructose corn syrup with food coloring, very minimal flavoring, no natural ingredients. And that's what we were dealing with. You know, my brother, who's a very accomplished amateur chef and our partner, Chris, who's a really geeks out on stuff like cocktails. When you go home and you've had this life-changing cocktail at a bar and Austin's got one of the best cocktail scenes in the country. And that's where we came up drinking cocktails. You go home and try to replicate that amazing cocktail you had and you go to the liquor store and you can find the craft bourbon that they use. You know, they, they use something that has a, you know, a label that you recognize. You say, oh, I can find that and I can find fresh limes and I can find sugar, but I cannot find what they mixed it with, you know, and that's the part that tasted so good. And that's where we were. I mean, we, we were stuck there. We were like, man, that, this is not cutting it. So we started making it in-house, you know, for house parties and things like that. And it just kind of went from there. Uh, but the call, these guys wanted you to come to, Kansas. Uh, yeah. They, oh, so, yeah. That, that story is, uh, <laughs> yeah. The first time we ever made a batch for commercial sale. Yeah. They call me to say, Hey man, my next door neighbor in Kansas, Chris called me. He's, he's working at a biology fellowship in Kansas doing cutting up fruit flies and making, doing genomics research on them. Cause that's the track he was on. He was going in lab research all the way. So meanwhile, Adam and Chris are making this tonic syrup that they had stumbled on this recipe for a house tonic syrup made the best gin and tonic that they'd ever had all natural version of kind of what comes out of the gun, you know, mm. much better tasting. And so they, they said, man, we really want to make this. Chris's next door neighbor at the time was the head chef at the luxury hotel and restaurant in Lawrence, Kansas. She said, man, this is really good gin and tonic. If you come in in the afternoon sometime, you can use our commercial kitchen, make some of this, and then you could probably sell it to our bar for, our house gin and tonic. Like we would buy it from you. So Chris calls my brother first and he said, man, this recipe we came up with, somebody wants to buy it. You know, like, what do we do? And Adam's, he's still here in Austin and he, he's finishing up school because he was, he took a couple victory laps while we were starting our <laughs> career. He said, what do you mean? What do we want to do with it, man? Sell it. Let's, <laughs> let's sell it. <laughs> Love it. Uh, sell it. <laughs> yeah, of course. So they called me cause I'm the only one with a credit card. And, uh, they said, man, we need glass. We need some bottles. We need some caps. We need some labels. Uh, so you're here, just, I mean, you're just like you're just like writing this down. Okay, glass. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah what else? Shopping what else? list. <laughs> They're like, this is what we need. All right. And so I got my credit card. I'm starting to place orders from places I've never been before because I'm buying like you know cardamom and allspice <laughs> and stuff. And Chris is like, you can find that here, and you can find the bottles here. And I'm like, I've never bought bottles wholesale, you know, like ever in my life for anything. So finally, it comes down to probably fifteen hundred bucks or something. I'm like, man, this is. That feels like my heart's racing. I'm like, I just spent $1,500 on, on a bunch of stuff that like, unless this stuff that we put in it is worth anything, I just wasted 1500 bucks on empty bottles, like medicine bottles, you know? 
This is like the legal version of Breaking Bad. Man, we hear that so many times. <laughs> really? People come see our space in, uh, in Northeast Austin. We have a custom-made tank bottling line. We got dry ingredients all laid out on the wall. You know, we get it in pallet size quantities. So people come in and they're like, man, this is like Breaking Bad in here. <laughs> We're like... We're not making anything. We're, everything we make is totally legal. So you spent 1500 bucks on bottles, tops, and now you've got to find a way to pay for a plane ticket to Kansas. So what do you do? Yeah, so 1500 bucks worth of, you know, if the stuff inside's not worth anything, it's 1500 bucks worth of junk. I mean, it's it's empty bottles. It looks like a medicine cabinet. So I'm I'm like, man, I can't I can't afford to justify flying down to Kansas for this. So, but I had these frequent flyer miles that, that I had put on my Southwest card. <laughs> my wife's like, man, you know, I thought we were going to go on vacation with those. And I'm like, nope, no, I got something better. <laughs> we're going to Kansas <laughs> to make tonic syrup. We're going to leave this Believe in. Okay? Me, we're going to leave this part in. Okay. Yeah. So she's okay with it now. She's it's okay out. with it now. Yeah. She's okay with it now, but man, she, I put her through the ringer, man. Cause oh. I can't imagine what that sounded like, but I was like, but just trust me, we're going, I'm going to Lawrence, Kansas. We're going to this commercial kitchen. She's like, you've never been in a commercial kitchen. It doesn't matter. I want to figure it out. So you walk into the Oread. The Oread, the luxury hotel in Lawrence, Kansas. The luxury hotel. Of They're Lawrence, like, yeah, Kansas. come by after lunch shift tomorrow. Things will be quiet. You know, you'll have the space to yourself. We're like, okay. So we come in, we have to put gloves on. So give us the visual. You guys are walking. What do you guys look like? I mean, what? Okay. So we pull up Chris's truck. He had an old, like. 94 Ford Ranger and we're filled the back up with empty bottles, empty uh caps, bags of spices and herbs, things like that. And we're just it's three at the time probably 24-year-old, 25-year-old kids walking in the service uh entry of a luxury hotel, you know, kind of uh we're going to the kitchen like we're supposed to be here for a they're like okay whatever so the the head chef comes and finds us kind of wandering around aimlessly she's like okay yeah, y'all come back here y'all have you know a couple hours to to do this so we start loading bags in and stacking them up in the corner where the kettle was it's like a 30 gallon steam kettle that they use for soup and things like that we've never used one of these we didn't even know how to turn it on we we had to ask the one of the line chefs like hey man can you turn this thing on for we get it start get it started for us so he's like, yeah, whatever. We're having hairnets on. We got our gloves on. And we got all we have is a piece of paper with the recipe that Adam and Chris had developed because they made it on a stovetop. So it was in like teaspoons and, and cups of, of things. So now we're like, all right, we got to blow this up into a 30-gallon recipe. So let's get our calculator out, start doing some math. Okay, we're going to need 20 gallons of water, and then we're going to need – you know, five cups of this. And, and it so was, somebody's running the math. Someone's like, oh, dumping. somebody's dumping out. Of, we're asking people, Hey, where's the measuring cups? And where's the, uh, we're looking around for all kinds of vessels that we can use for storing. Like we're going to put the agave nectar in this big pot, but we don't have a measuring cup that fits in us. We're pouring one cup increments into a measure, into a big pot and heating that. And then, I mean, it was crazy, man. And she said we had a couple of hours after the lunch shift before the line chefs came in to get ready for dinner. Hmm. And so like four hours later, we're maybe halfway through our batch. I mean, it was bad. We were washing dishes for them to try to get out of their way a little bit. And they were just looking at us like, what are you doing here, man? Like y'all are really messing this thing up. And we were, man, we were sweating. It was hot. 
the line chefs were just so irritated at us by the end of it. I think the head chef was kind of irritated too, because she, she maybe thought we knew what we were doing a little bit better. <laughs> but at the end of this, we leave with like, I think 19 gallons, if I remember correctly of tonic syrup. And what we had to do is put it in five gallon buckets. <laughs> so we're essentially like ladling it out of the 30 gallon kettle and filling up five gallon buckets with it carrying out to Chris's truck. It's got like sloshing everywhere. We put it in Chris's truck. We go back in, we fill up another bucket, do it, do it that way. So like three or four buckets later, we're finally done. We're, you know, washing our hands and everything. And, you know, just felt like, man, we were beaten, totally beaten, (laughs) defeated by the process. And we're like, this may have been a really bad idea. (laughs) But we got to Chris's apartment with our buckets. And then we, we thought to ourselves, man, that, that was, it wasn't as bad as we thought. You know, we had a drink. We kind of calmed down <laughs> nice. a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Little, had a little something to work with, right? Had a few mixes. Yeah, exactly. Calm down, down a little bit. We're like, man, okay, now we now what do we got? You know, Adam and Robert are leaving to go back to Austin and D.C. the next day. And we have 20 gallons of this stuff that we have to fill into these bottles somehow and label. So we're like, man, this is like 11 o'clock at night or whatever. We All Chris has is one of those water jugs that goes in the fridge with a spigot on it yeah it's like that's it so we get it we pull it out it's got i think it's like a two and a half gallon capacity so we fill it up we sit there with gloves on and just fill a bottle at a time put a cap on fill (laughs) a bottle at a time put a cap on refill it so we're sitting there listening to like led zeppelin (laughs) talking about you know college and you know talking about how we think that this thing might do okay and how we're excited about it and Man, I wonder if after such a nightmare in the kitchen, if, you know, if the chef is going to really pitch us for the bar, like if we actually think that they'll buy some from us or, I mean, just like the prototypical, just standing three there, guys sitting around at midnight. three guys sitting around at midnight, <laughs> filling up bottles that they had made of this, you know, tonic syrup that, you know, tasted good. We were, we were confident in that and we liked it, but just sitting there like brainstorming, seeing the future, you know, mm. of course the future looks nothing like you <laughs> think it does, but, um. Now we sit back and those were the good old days, you know, that was fun. So then when's the big break? So that's, that's your entry point into the market. Then when does it really start to turn for Liber? So two things happened that were huge for us. One was we had, um, before I moved back, Chris moved back from Kansas about a year and a half before I moved back from DC. So it was Adam and Chris in Austin together, just them two. And we had pitched our products to HEB. We said, hey, these are the mixers that are coming. They're higher quality. They're more craft bar oriented. People are going to come to expect these. Mm-hmm. People are of our- HEB is a big chain. Oh yeah, chain HEB is a yeah, top 25 yeah. national retailer, huge yeah. privately owned grocery chain here in Texas and it's kind of the Southwest and really support local businesses. I mean, they're, they're great to work with for Texas-based small businesses and they really try to foster those companies. So we pitched their their line, our line rather, to their buyers. They passed on it. So we're like, okay. But then a couple of weeks later, we hear we get a phone call from somebody that says, hey, I wanted to let you know that I think HEB is going to go ahead and move forward with your mixers. At mm-hmm. that time, we only had two available. Uh, what was, two were those? It was our tonic syrup, our spice tonic syrup that we had made in uh in lawrence uh by this time we were making it in stovetop batches in, nice. uh, in austin but uh that same product and then we had made another one which was also very sort of craft cocktail oriented called a texas grapefruit shrub hmm. and that's a vinegar based cocktail syrup so two kind of really at this point when you look at our line those two were the funky ones those two were kind of the the craft 
really out there mixers. And that's what those are the ones HEB wanted. Those are the only two we had at the time. Hmm. So we're like, man, that's, that's great. So to answer your question, that was our first break hmm. was the HEB order just to put a case of each product in every HEB that they wanted it in, which was like 90 something stores. And I, I dodged a bullet on this one, but put Adam and Chris in the kitchen for like 18 hours. So wow. they were, this is time intensive. Completely, completely underwater. I mean, this is, these are just stovetop batches in 25 gallon pots. That's when they started saying, Hey, we got HEB. This is a real buyer. They believe in our product. We can do this. That, that was the first thing. The second thing was, Oh my God, we caught a big fish. Now what do we do with it? We don't have the equipment necessary to, to gut the fish, you know, the important, the important thing here is though, I know you, you know, this is common sense to you, but I think a lot of people would have probably done something really dumb here is they would have said, Hey, I don't know if we can really handle this. Right. Like, I guess the takeaway is get the deal and then figure it out later. Right. Man, that, that is that you're right. That is a, uh, that's something that we have learned over and over and over again, because, you know, at that point I had risked my livelihood on this. There was no turning back. There was no, ah, this isn't going to work. I'm just going to go back and, and get my job back in DC and start it over. You know, my wife and I had moved down here. We bought a house. We, uh, I guess it, when HB happened, we hadn't quite done that, but that's when it put us on the map of, you know, Adam, for example, my brother hadn't even started his career yet. I mean, this was it for him. Chris had moved back from Kansas to do this full time. There was no turning back. Every time something happened to us, the mentality was, how do we do this? How do we get this done? And you're right. It's the catch the fish first and then figure out what you're going to do with it later. <laughs> because I think when your back is against the wall, very rarely, and in fact, I can't think of one major time in which we were not able to come up with a solution hmm. to the problem. It's not always pretty. We don't get it right the first time. And there have been many mistakes along the way. But when your back's against the wall and you get what you want, you say, man, we want, we want a big buyer. We want our products to be taken seriously. We, we know our products are good. We want somebody on the other side of that affirming that. And then HEB comes and says, we want your products on our shelves. Oh, we got what we wanted. And it's like, now what? You know, 18 hours in the kitchen. 25 gallon pots at a time, you know, literally staying at the kit. We, my wife's uh, cousin owns a really good catering company out in Dripping Springs called Gourmet Gals. And mm -hmm. they graciously allowed us to use their kitchen. We rented kitchen space from them. We had our own pots and stuff, but we'd bring it in. We'd drive, we'd load up Chris's truck, drive it out to Dripping Springs, make our batch, and then drive back with finished product. And they were in the kitchen one night from after service closed, which is when we had access to it, to the next morning when they opened. Uh, they were in the kitchen the entire time. And that was for the HEB order. That was the first thing that put us on the map. Hmm. That's when we said, man, hey, Robert, you got to get down here from D.C. You know, I'm sitting up there in my Cush office job and I'm like, I'm like, is it safe yet? Is it, you know, can, can I do it? HEB kind of made that the case. That it was like, man, you, you got to get down here. Talk to us about volume. What are you guys pushing in terms of? So last oh. year we sold, uh, we have a very complicated business. That's, that's the other thing that when you, when you kind of learn as you go, our business has evolved. And uh, so we, we serve three different markets. We serve bars and restaurants, which is up until now been a pretty small portion of our business. Primarily we serve retailers like Twin, Liquor, Specs, HEB, you know, liquor stores are our 
probably last year was probably 75% of our business was selling to liquor stores. And that's nationwide. One thing that we have the luxury of doing is shipping our product across state lines, which alcohol companies cannot do. So we run adjacent to the spirits industry, but we're removed from a lot of the regulations that they have to deal with. So we can ship UPS to the best liquor store in Indianapolis. We can (laughs) ship UPS to California. So we grew our business that way. We would cold call. We cold call people say, we have this great product. It's on trend. You know, your craft bartender types, your your people who are making cocktails at home are going to want this. Can we ship you a case? We have no minimum orders. Just bring in whatever you want. Nice. And we found success doing that. So we sold like 48,000 bottles last year. Talk about billion dollar buyer. So the second big break we got, HB being the first, the second big break we got was we were featured on a television show on CNBC about two and a half months ago, three months ago now, which seems like it was much, much farther away than that. But three months ago, uh, called Billion Dollar Buyer. And um, yeah, it was it's uh, Tillman Fertitta, who is the sole owner, Landry's Inc. They own Morton's The Steakhouse and Saltgrass Steakhouse and Ocean Air. And I mean, yeah, it's, you know, a, <laughs> over 500 properties, the Kima Boardwalk and Golden Nugget Casinos. I mean, he owns mm. everything. It's a lot of cocktails. Yeah, a lot of cocktails, for sure. He's selling, he sold something like 300,000 Shirley Temples, which are just like, you know, grenadine and Sprite. Yeah. And uh, like last year, and we're just thinking our jaws like drop when you hear that. We're like, what? 300,000? I didn't know 300,000 people drink Shirley Temples. <laughs> I, like, I guess it's like kids. Susie, but, I guess. Uh, so we got an email from a casting agent. And we we get emails like this occasionally from Southern Living or from, you know, Austin Monthly or Esquire, whatever, saying, hey, we want to feature in our gift guide. What, what do we need to do? Can we? Can you fill out this thing and send us some pictures? And yeah, yeah, sure. Like, that's fine. That We love getting that. We get free press out of that. And when you're in such a small industry, somebody shines a light on it and you're in that industry, you benefit a whole lot from mm-hmm. it. So nothing like this, though. This was NBC Universal. They email us saying, hey, we got this new show coming out uh, on CNBC. It's kind of like Shark Tank, but instead of investing in your company, you're competing or you're pitching to do business with Tillman Fertitta, Hmm. who's this billionaire. He's a really colorful dude, charismatic guy, and he owns Landry's and you're pitching your business to him to do business with him. What do y'all think? I mean, sure. Like, we'll do it. We'll do it. What do we need to do? Fill out this two page application and let us know. All right. So you fill it out and you say the percentage Oh, we fill it out. I would ask you. 5%. 5%. Yeah. No way we're going to get this. Like we filled it out. We sent it back two weeks later. They emailed, congratulations. You made it to the next round. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay, cool. We we didn't even think twice about it. We have business to do. I mean, we're pounding the pavement. We're knocking on doors. Now we need you to uh, submit a home video of your business that kind of captures the day-to-day and who you are and what your product is. Man. Okay. That's going to take like two hours to do and two hours to us at this point, our business is pretty valuable, you yeah. know, but luckily we had this friend who has a, a company here in town that does film editing and he, you know, produces documentaries. So, and he sits right next to me cause he rents office space from <laughs> So I said, Hey Alex, we need to do this video. Do you think you could shoot this thing for us? You do sit there for, you know, pretty reasonable rent, you know? <laughs> so we, we talk him into doing it. He follows us around. We shoot it a couple of times. Sure enough, two, three hours later, we got this video, we feel like, man, at this point, my 5% is up to 15%. There's a 15% chance we get this, you know, that mm-hmm. they asked us to do a video. That's great. I think we're in good shape, but there's no way it's going to happen. So we submit the video a couple weeks later. Congratulations. Like y'all made it to the next round. 
now we've attached the application for the show and this is the actual application. If you submit this and we like it, you're on the show. Okay. What are you thinking? Success rate? Likelihood that you're going to get this thing now? 25%, maybe 20%. Hmm. We're like, man, they, they must've liked our video. I thought our video was, it was funny. It did a good job representing us, but I'm the one that does our books and I'm the one that gathers our information. I'm kind of the office manager that pays the bills and makes sure we get paid. And everything on this application is 30 pages and everything has to do with numbers. You know, how much did you make? How many units did you produce? What's your margin? Who owns equity in your company? How much debt do you have? How much? Golly. I hear some lawyers getting involved. Yeah. So we send it to our lawyers say, man, is this legit? Like, I don't (laughs) want to give this information to anybody, you know, next day he comes back and he's like, yeah, this is from NBC universal. Like this is from a studio and it's legit. We're like, okay. So well, I'll fill it out. takes me like two hours to gather all the information to put our best foot forward not even a week later, two days later, congratulations, you guys are going to be on the show, like get ready. <laughs> and so we're, we're like, oh my gosh, like that fast, it goes from, and you know, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, but it goes from very low expectations to finding out that you did it. I mean, it feels like winning the lottery or something where yeah. you're just like, I don't know how to feel, man. I don't, I'm so taken by surprise by the fact that, that we're going to be on a TV show. We don't know anything about TV. We don't know anything about being filmed for anything. We don't really know anything about the show. I mean, the concept they say, yeah, we're going to be there for filming in like a month. It's going to be two days of filming in the beginning of February and three days of filming at the end of February. And that's when you are going to pitch your deal. Hmm. It's like, okay, here we go. So we walk in like first day of filming, they've landed on our space. We had to wrestle with our landlord to even get the thing allowed to be filmed there. I mean, it was tough. You know, we're like, He's like, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't, I'm not going to sign off on anything. If the cameraman's camera falls through the window, like I don't want anything to do with the liability of that. So we had to wrestle with getting ourselves the to be the ones accountable for for anything that happens, you know. And it looks kind of like this room, man. It's it's like wires running everywhere. It doesn't even look like our office anymore. Hmm. I mean, I don't even know what they're going to film because I'm like, this is not. This isn't even. <laughs> this ain't even look like our place. So we come in with coffee. It's like 8 a.m. and people are already there. They've set up their little command center with all the screens and stuff. And we're like, man, this is going to be weird. Sure enough, they start filming. They follow us around with their cameras. Every single thing we do throughout the day, talk to anybody, talk to each other, talk to the producers, whoever we talk to, it's on camera. Well, that's weird. That's the weirdest part. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been interviewed before, like been on a news station or something. When you're a kid, you get interviewed on the sidelines or whatever, but but nothing like it's that. A different level. That's a different level. You're, you're like, you had to think to yourself, you got a mic right here all the time, man. It was, it was weird, but, but it was fun too. I mean, they captured everything as it happened. So Tillman walks in the door for the first time. We've never met him before. They capture our saying hi for the first time. He asks us questions about our business. What do you guys see this company doing? What, what do y'all do here? What's a day like in the life of Liber? All this, all this stuff, and uh, they are right there in your face with the camera, hmm. capturing it all. That was bizarre. Hey tribe, thanks for listening to part one of the Robert Higginbotham episode. Come back next week, and we will pick up with Robert to hear about the experience on the Billion Dollar Buyer Show. See you next week.